Good morning. This is Pastor Adam Eggleston with First Christian Church. We are so glad that you are joining us this morning. Before we get started this morning, I just wanted to take a moment and thank our veterans. Uh, this past Thursday was Veterans Day, and we just want to honor you um, for all that you have done for us. I am only able to sit here and do what I do because you did what you did. Um, we are forever grateful for the ways that you have served our country, for the things you've had to endure uh, to be able to give us the freedoms that we have. Jesus said that there is no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends, and far too many of you have seen that happen time and time again, and the sacrifices you've had to make. There isn't enough gratitude uh, to show you for how much we appreciate that. So I just wanted to take a moment this morning and say thank you. Thank you so much for all the ways that you have served our country. All right. As we open up our Bibles and spend our time in the scriptures for today, I want to take a look at a question um, that I've had circling around in the back of my mind for a long time now, and that's, what does revival look like? What images or ideas does that word bring to mind for you? What does revival look like? I, I believe that there are some simple answer that, answers to that question, like four baptisms in two weeks. That's something our church is celebrating this week. But there are also some more complicated nuances to that word. Depending on your upbringing, you may believe, like many here in the South, that revival means a series of church meetings one week with fire and brimstone preaching to try to get everybody back to God. Far too often, even with a passionate preacher, many end up chasing the fate of Eutychus. And if you don't recognize that name, he's the young man who fell asleep to Paul's preaching while being unfortunately propped up in a third-story window. But not even dying got him out of that sermon. Paul went out and revived him literally, and then they went back in where he just went back to preaching. But revival is such a bigger idea than that. And it's something I've been wrestling with for a while. And that wrestling started with a video that I saw on social media, but I'll come back to that in a little bit. But to me, it was an idea worth exploring. And so in some ways, I've been conflicted, and it really has been a wrestling. So I hope that this makes sense this morning, as some of this comes from a weird place, but I'm hoping that we can explore it together and come out the other side in better conversation about this. Now, it's an idea that's quite interesting to search through the scriptures for. I mean, if we're talking about a view that allows revival to mean individual restoration, then we see a ton of examples in the scriptures where Jesus healed people and restored them to a fuller life. We see him restore Peter to his rightful place in ministry after the crucifixion. You know, Jesus had told Peter that he was going to deny him three times that night. And when it happened, Peter was mortified and ran off to weep. And so after the resurrection, he probably had some serious questions about whether or not Jesus would have him back. But if your Bible has headings placed in it, in John chapter 21, you'll see something to the effect of Jesus reinstates Peter. He calls him aside and just says, do you love me? Do you absolutely, do you really, do you love me? And Peter says, of course. And so Jesus tells him, then go and take care of his people. He restores his role and revives his soul. What about whole groups, though, if we're looking for this? Often, as preachers, we preach our way through Ezekiel and the Valley of Dry Bones when we start talking about revival. I believe that this is a good and correct image of it. 
God gives us this visual by taking Ezekiel out into a valley where an entire army of the past has fallen and been withered away by the passing of time. As he stares down into this mass of skeletons, God commands him to preach a word over their corpses, and at his word, through the power of God, they begin to rattle back to life, to stand up, to have their bodies reincorporated until the breath of God comes rushing back in from the four edges of the map and revives life back into this army so that they can prepare to fight another day. And that's a great representation of what the church is so desperately looking for when it seeks revival. And we do seek it, don't we? I mean, as a church body or as the church body, we have been praying for years, for decades, for generations even, that God would revive our land. You know, in our church this morning, we're singing about it with the song, Revive Us Again, where we're asking that we be refreshed for another week and then another week again and again. And we talk about it, we ask for it, we try to figure out how to get it, But are we really prepared for it? Would we recognize it? You know, is there a clear marker that signals revival is happening? Well, let's look over in the New Testament and try to find examples of this happening. Um, There is one story that pretty much is exactly what we think of when we think of an immediate revival sent straight from God. We think about the story of Pentecost. The disciples all gathered in the upper room just waiting for a signal. Jesus had risen from the grave and had told them that their mission was about to really begin and that they would know when, when the sign came from the Holy Spirit. Didn't know what it was. Just go wait. You'll know it when you see it. And when that sign came, there was no denying it. There was wind from every direction, flames above their heads, and speaking in languages from all over the world that brought curious travelers to their doorsteps to find out what in the world was going on. They end up hearing Peter preach the first true sermon on the gospel, and 3,000 people believe and join the church that day. That is absolutely, undeniably a revival moment as that many people find their way into the faith in Jesus as Messiah. It was a 2,500% gain in numbers that day. Throughout church history, there have been moments of revival that we look back to and celebrate. And I wonder if they were recognized in their time for what they were. A couple of weeks back, my class talked about the anniversary of Martin Luther posting the 95 Theses on a church door, igniting the Reformation movement. Because that anniversary is on Halloween each year. That moment was one of several times in history where someone or a group of someone's looked at the church and looked at the Bible and said, you know, the Sesame Street, one of these things is not like the other. And they point people back to Jesus from that. Another one we talk about heavily in our brotherhood of churches is not the Reformation movement, but the Restoration movement. Alexander Campbell, Barton Stone, and many others gathered at Cane Ridge and other places preaching to great crowds and bringing people back to Jesus by emphasizing the scriptures, each one clearly a revival of one sort or another, which makes me wonder what it would look like today. You know, for many months now, I've been following a concept on social media that really had me upset at first. It wasn't a re movement, not revival, restoration, reformation. It wasn't any of those. It was a de-movement, deconstruction. And it still bothers me because it's an idea that's led so many to leave the faith altogether. 
But you know what starts it in people's lives? Often it's because they pay attention to the Bible and then to the church. And when they don't line up, it all unravels. Some people are the determined restorationists who are unraveling the cultural expectations, traditions, and hypocrisies from the good, life-bringing words of Jesus and are coming back to the church with a stronger perspective, revitalized, and leading revival in their context. Others are pulling one string and watching the entire sweater unravel. Many write off the sweater as a loss when it's simply one string hanging loose. Well, I got to be honest, I don't entirely know what to do with this yet. I do feel like the church needs to be aware that this is going on in many people's lives and to be there ready to step up and answer questions and lovingly walk them through the process to bring them out on the other side that brings revival to the church. Questions aren't bad, but questions we don't want to answer can be devastating to a person. And perhaps some of that hurt is where some of the videos like the one I saw are coming from. The video I saw on social media, this young lady was talking about opinions that would upset an entire generation. And her response was, you've prayed for years, decades even, for revival in the church. It's happening. It's ongoing. You're just on the wrong side of it. You prayed for a revival, you got it, and you don't like how it looks. Now, there are multiple things there that upset me. First off, I don't like that my gut initially thought, yeah, that sounds about right. Because historically, that is how the church has received things like this. And I've seen it play out before. I do think that many potential revivals get squashed early on because they don't like how it looks. That It doesn't look like what we expect it to and what we want it to. But more than that, I hate the idea of being on sides. A revival can't have sides. I hate the idea that she sees the fight as generational. The places where I see hope for a revival are the very ones where those ideas are set aside. If you're talking about engaging her age group, the young lady in the video, how about the passion movement, which piles 70,000 18 to 25 year olds into the Mercedes-Benz Stadium every year to worship and hear preaching? It's not headed up by some young hotshot preacher that just knows how to talk to these young kids. It's led by a 63-year-old man that just loves Jesus. You know, and I saw an interesting example of this last week in a way that kind of defied the stereotypes about the generations. Few of us went to a Crowder concert over in Roanoke. We've used his music here uh, at our church on Sunday mornings, and people end up liking them a lot more than many of the other things we do because he's just really good at connecting with people and the heart of what they need. But at one point during the concert, I became very distracted. There were all ages, races, all of that, all worshiping together. And at one point, he brought it down softly into hymns we all love. And almost everybody was singing along. You know, the room was dark. The lights from the stage were bright, but it was a different light that had my attention. Off to my left, I kept reflecting, reflecting off of my glasses, there was a screen glowing in the darkness. And there was an older, white-haired lady sitting down, scrolling Facebook for the majority of the concert. The few times she put her phone away, she didn't look happy. But I couldn't help 
think how ironic it was to see all of the young, so-called tech-obsessed people lost in the moment in worship, while this older lady was lost in Facebook, so obsessed with not wanting to miss something that she was missing the main thing. And so as I processed all that, and I continue to wrestle with this and several other topics over the last little while, God surprised me a couple weeks back. I'd already known that this was going to be the topic for this morning, but I had a long way to go in understanding it. And this is going to sound weird to some, and it wasn't something that I'm used to either, but God gave me a Bible verse to go to. Now, when I say he gave me a Bible verse, some of you are thinking, duh, he gave us a bunch of them. Or maybe, you know, like I have before, and we've talked about this, is that maybe you've prayed to God to send you to a verse, and you kind of feel a push that sends you right where you need to go in that moment. I've experienced that. Like times when I've been anxious and God gives me this, you know, kind of vague idea of it's in Philippians, find your way to chapter four, and I find the words that help. But this time was very different and it caught me off guard. I was asleep and had a dream. All I remember from the dream was that I was looking in the scriptures with someone and a particular verse was being pointed out. And it was Nehemiah chapter eight, verse 17. And I woke up and I thought, well, that was weird. I'll have to look that up in the morning. But as I kept trying to go back to sleep, it was like there was this nudging of, no, you need to see what it says. Look it up now. But before I opened my Bible, I kept thinking that either A, this is going to be an obscure verse that means nothing except I need to watch what I eat before bedtime, or B, I hope it is a very specific verse with clear instructions, because that's what I need. Like Paul's vision of go to this town, go to this street, meet a man by this name, and listen to him. Like I was really hoping for that level of clarity. But when I read it, I found these words. The whole community that had returned from exile made shelters and lived in them. The Israelites had not celebrated like this from the days of Joshua son of Nun until that day. And there was tremendous joy. Yep. Obscure verse, less pizza. Got it. But then over the next few days, it really kind of ate at me. I kept thinking it had to mean something. You know, was it this part of my life that it applied to or this? I'm looking over here thinking, what can it possibly mean? And so I started reviewing the story of Nehemiah. You know, Jerusalem had fallen into decay. All the people were taken away into captivity. The people returned home and they rebuilt their city under Nehemiah's direction and Finally, the light bulb went off. That that's what revival looks like. That verse right there, it looks like all of the exiles coming home from captivity. Every sinner who is far from home being welcomed back into the city, into the family, called from every corner of the world to come back to where they belong in the kingdom of God. The exiles coming home. The very next verse talks about how they spent days going through the scriptures together and worshiping God together. And the joy they felt was unlike anything they had experienced since the days when Joshua led them into the promised land after all their years of wandering in the wilderness. Revival is the exiles coming home and the joy we share in God. Then it hit me. Why I couldn't just find a single story in the scriptures that outlined, you know, ABC, here's what revival was supposed to look like. The entire thing, the entire Bible is that story. 
The Old Testament promised it. It explained how we all became exiles, sent away from the Garden of Eden, the struggles we would go through, gave us instructions of, you know, your life will be a lot easier if you do this and you don't do that. You know, God came to Abraham and he told him, I have a plan to bless the entire world and put it right through your descendants, a promise that God fulfilled in the works of Jesus. His death and resurrection was the spark that ignited a movement that sent us out to search for the exiles and bring them back to the kingdom. A mission that isn't complete, a revival that isn't successful until all of us exiles are standing together in the new Jerusalem after Jesus returns and worshiping together with that tremendous joy. Even as you look at the rest of the New Testament, look at the letters from the apostles, they're all pointing ahead towards that reality. You know, Paul spent a lot of time arguing about who the exiles were and how to welcome them. And you start looking through his writings and Peter's and John's, and they can, in one way, be boiled down to two main ideas. It was either, have you forgotten what we're all striving towards? Or, you've got it. Keep going. Stay focused. Keep loving. It's really either you're on track or you're not. Which letters do you think would be written to our churches this morning? Revival isn't about the preaching, the music, the style, the anything else we argue over. Revival looks like Jesus. It's the ongoing rescue mission to search for the exiles and to bring them back within the walls of the kingdom of God and to rejoice with them. And that's going to happen either with us or despite us. It's going to happen. And I say that because it's not going to happen for us unless we are united on that goal. Even when I asked my teens last week about what revival looked like, one key word they said was unity. None of this will ever happen until the church ditches an us-versus-them mentality and unites over that common goal of bringing the exiles home. Despite what that girl in the video thought, this isn't a generational fight. Despite what the early church thought, it's not a Jew-versus-Gentile fight. It's not a lone theologian who sees it better than the rest. There are no sides, except it's in every single one of us fighting against the ones trying to keep us in exile. So that's the real question. That's what we all have to wrestle with and come to an understanding of, is whether or not we are pushing towards the goal of revival that Jesus initiated all those years ago. You know, there was one other moment in the concert last week that left me bothered. It was during the intermission, and they made the usual plea for sponsorship of kids overseas. That's kind of the general mission call of these types of events. However, the gentleman behind me kept complaining that he wouldn't give them any of his money because all of the kids here in America, that they're not helping. And I get what he meant. There are a lot of kids here who desperately need the church to be the church and to take care of them. But every ounce of me wanted to turn around and ask, so what are you doing for those kids? Now, I believe everybody's called to different parts of the mission with different sets of skills. So if your calling is kids in third world nations, do it. If your calling is kids in America that aren't as blessed, do that. But sitting there complaining about the left arm isn't going to fix the broken right arm. So... Here's kind of the fine point on all of it. When it comes to revival, when it comes to the rescue mission of bringing the exiles back home to celebrate together with tremendous joy, what are you doing to make that happen? Not your church, not your family, not your company, not anybody else. 
Ask yourself, what are you doing to make that happen? If there isn't a good answer, then sing out that revive us again as revive me again. Asking God to bring your heart back into alignment with the mission, giving you joy and bringing exiles home again. If you are that exile, I implore you to come home running. You know, reach out to those of us here at the church. We would be more than happy to talk to you about all of this, to show you the path home that leads through the promises made millennia ago. That when they were fulfilled, they sparked a revolution that is still changing the world all around us and bringing us closer to that day when we will all stand before God and rejoice in tremendous joy. He loves you and he is calling you now. I implore you to answer that call. Let's pray. Father, I am so grateful this morning for everything you continue to do for us, for all the ways that we are able to gather in person, online, on the radio, all the ways that we can get together as the church body, as the family of God, and just worship. To dig into the scriptures, to find out what it is we're supposed to be doing with the time that we're given. Father, I thank you so much for all the examples you give us about how to revive the world, how to bring life back into it, how to bring people back to you. Father, I pray that each of us is able to do that. I I pray that you will show us in the coming days and weeks how to reach out, how to be personally involved, to show us what we should be doing what our part of the mission is. Bless each of us in a way that shows us exactly what to do to get your name out, to glorify you. Father, I pray for each and every person listening this morning that they will find their way to what is next. That if they are not close to you, that this will be the moment that they realize how far from home they are that they will get homesick and just come back running to you. And that those who are already a part of your kingdom would feel the desperate need to go out and bring more in. Father, I just thank you so much for Jesus, for everything he went through for us, to give us that hope that there are good things to come and that there will be tremendous joy in the future. We thank you in his name. Amen.